The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. Okay, let's, um, let's spend a moment in prayer before we get into the Word. Our great God, we thank you for the fact that you are doing so much in our lives. Um, we're thankful for these times together, but we know that you're at work even in the midst of the week. You're at work through all of our relationships. You're at work in the midst of the fun things and the hard things. You are using us uh, to make your name known, and you are at work in us to make us more like Jesus. We thank you for the words of um, Ephesians 5 that got after a lot of those dynamics. And so we pray, God, that we would not be influenced by the control of substances, but that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit. We pray that we would be addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and singing and making melody to the Lord with our hearts, giving thanks always and for everything to you in the name of our Lord Jesus. And Lord, we pray for our family dynamics. I thank you for the marriages in this church. I pray for their health, for their joy. I pray for the wives, God, that they would be able to entrust themselves to their husbands. They would be able to support the vision that you've given their husbands for their families. I pray for the husbands that they would love their wives sacrificially the way Jesus loves the church that they would love her as their own bodies, that they would lay down their lives for their wives. I pray, God, for the parents, that they wouldn't provoke their children, that they wouldn't make their children frustrated and angry needlessly, but that the kids would see that the parents are a great gift from you. Lord, we live in a culture where kids are taught that they don't really have much use for parents other than to be as their cheerleaders. But we know that your word says differently. And God, I pray that in our families, kids would be raised in the Lord. And I pray that the kids would see what a beautiful gift that is. Lord, I pray for everyone as they go to work. This is such a huge part of our days. The hours we clock in our workplaces, and it can feel like drudgery sometimes, and the relationships can be brutal sometimes uh, in different workplaces. Everyone's got different stories. But we know that we're called to work as unto you. And I pray that you would give us extra grace for that, that um, <clears throat> we would be able to bear up under hard loads, and we would be able to work with a quality that shows people um, the dignity in, that's in humanity because of the image of God. And I pray that um, if we have responsibility over others, if we are the bosses, that we would um, not show favoritism, that we would not be harsh, but we would be um, a master such as you are, God, that we would have an eye to the true welfare of those who are in our charge. Lord, I also want to pray, um, I want to pray for the single people in our midst, even though it's not mentioned specifically in Ephesians 5, we know it was in, in 1 Corinthians 7, and God, I pray for the single people who um, uh, don't have the, the husband-wife relationship to get after, I pray that they would show the sufficiency of Christ, that their contentment in you, their joy in being yours, in living the, the same sort of life that Jesus lived as a single man, the same sort of life the Apostle Paul lived, that they would show the sufficiency of Christ to a world um, that doesn't believe in that. So Lord, whatever situations we find ourselves in, I ask that Christ would be known through us, and that the world would be confounded, and the world would be attracted to that and that you would get the glory. And if we're going to be conformed to your image like that, we know we need your help, and we need your word, and we need 
a better glimpse of Jesus himself. We need to see what we're imitating. We need to see the one to whom we are being conformed. So I ask that you would show us that now in your word. We ask it for your glory. Amen. Well, our scripture reading for today is actually from the book of Isaiah. Going back to Isaiah chapter 42. And um, if you'll stand with me, I'm going to read chapter 42, verses 1 through 9. Hear what Holy Scripture says. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spreads out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and the spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, and from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. You can be seated. Today we're starting a four-week series back in the book of Isaiah. It's, um, so we'll end this series on Easter. It's a preparation of our hearts for Resurrection Sunday. And it's a continuation of sorts of our Advent series. If you remember, we were in the early chapters of Isaiah for Advent, and we were looking at glimpses of the coming Messiah from those chapters. Well, now we're going to be in the later chapters of Isaiah. And I think you'll see that the portraits of the Messiah are even a little more filled out. So these four passages that we're going to be looking at are called the servant songs. They're called that because they're written in a poetic form. And in all of them, God is referring to the coming Messiah as my servant. So our hope is that in meditating on these servant songs, we are going to see who Jesus is and what he's accomplished even more clearly. This morning, we're going to look at the Messiah as the servant of justice. You know, everyone in our society believes that injustice is a problem. But everywhere there's this blanket assumption that, well, just more education, more political lobbying, more grassroots outrage, that'll turn the tide. Maybe for one kind of injustice in one place for a time. But, you know, I think part of the reason why we can be so optimistic about our efforts for justice is because we don't see what's going on globally. Right? We only see our own local context. It's a very small vantage point. And we also have a very small grasp of history. So we can ignore the fact that in many societies, a certain level of justice has been achieved. And then in time, that culture regresses or dissolves completely as another culture becomes dominant. Now, I'm, I'm not suggesting we should be pessimistic and uncooperative in efforts for justice. Christians should be at the forefront of working for justice. But I think it's time that we saw that injustice isn't just a matter of ignorance. And it's not just, you know, due to a lack of positive momentum. Injustice is an evil that's present in all of us. And so if injustice is so universal, so multifaceted, so intrinsic to who, to who we've become, then how could it ever be undone? First, we have to understand the cause of injustice. And the whole book of Isaiah up to this point has done a really good job of unpacking that. It shows us that injustice is actually a byproduct of false worship. 
So when we don't trust or honor the God in whom alone justice can be defined, when we worship lesser forces or we worship ourselves and we look to these functional gods in order to define reality, well then that idolatry leads to the distortion of truth throughout the societies that we make. So Isaiah says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. And then that distortion of truth then leads to the corruption of our inner beings. And Isaiah describes that corruption like this. He says, the whole head is sick, the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. And then finally, that impurity, that corruption. Well, at first it seems like, well, maybe that just, that, that's just my own problem, right? No, eventually it leads to an acting out of all kinds of oppression. Isaiah says, Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, and the riders who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice, to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil, that they may make the fatherless their prey. He speaks of bribes and murder and this sort of indirect blood guilt throughout the land. And the Apostle Paul <clears throat> describes it this way. He says, They were filled with all manner of evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, inventors of evil, faithless, heartless, ruthless. So we've got this slide. Let's look at this, this downward trajectory toward injustice. And we see this not only in Isaiah, but we also see it in Romans chapter 1. So we start with idolatry. That's the root cause, false worship. And that leads to foolish thinking, distorted thinking, which leads to inner impurity, corruption, which leads to injustice. Remember that. We'll keep that trajectory in mind later. Well, one of the themes of the book of Isaiah is that the Lord is going to raise up a servant to deal with injustice. But who could this servant possibly be? Who could deal with something like this? There are types of the coming servant that are sort of teased out throughout Isaiah. So you're like, hmm, is this, is this a servant? Is this a servant? In chapter 20, Isaiah himself, in faithfully declaring Yahweh's words of truth, he is called my servant. In chapter 22, King Hezekiah's steward, Eliakim, he is called my servant, particularly in relation to how he's going to serve as a father figure, a protector for Jerusalem and Judah. And in chapter 41, so just before the passage we're looking at, the people of Israel as a whole are called my servant because they're still carrying on Abraham's role of bringing blessing to the nations. But we also see, you know, the way Isaiah talks about God's people, it's clear that they're not going to be the source of justice to the people. They can't even work out justice among themselves. And then chapters 44 to 45 the Persian king Cyrus. He's not specifically given the label servant, but he is referred to as the Lord's anointed shepherd. That's, that's a shocking way to talk about a pagan king. He's called the Lord's anointed shepherd because he will liberate God's people out of captivity and restore them to their own land. But none of these servant figures in the book of Isaiah, none of them can address injustice in the ultimate way. None of these are the servant the one who is unveiled for us, starting here in 42, verse 1. It says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Before we even get into it, let's look at an outline of, of kind of where the text is going. So we know in Jesus, God has appointed a servant who is going to deal with injustice in a final way. And verses 1 through 4 show us how he will operate. That he is actually going to have a sense of gentle control in how he brings about justice. And then in verses 5 through 7, we see the extent of his work. That this isn't just some local project. This is going global. This is for the nations. And, in, um, and, and also that it permeates every aspect of creation. It is basically undoing the curse it is restoring order 
to what God has made. And then in verses 8 and 9, we see the core of the servant's mission. We see that um, he's going to sever the very root of injustice, which we just saw is idolatry. Okay, so let's look at verse 1. You know, as far as imperative verbs go, are you, are you grammar people? I like imperative verbs. Um, I think behold is a pretty good one. It's, it might be my favorite imperative verb. Uh, it's much better than something like run or die. Uh, you know, behold, it's, it's a command to look. It's a command to take in the whole scope of something. And behold always leads you to something interesting. Behold means not just notice this for a moment, but it means thoroughly and completely hold this in your view. Examine it, meditate on it. And actually, this is the third time that the word behold has been used in this close context. So if you look back at chapter 41, uh, verse 24, there we're told to behold the nothingness of fake gods. And then five verses later in 41.29, we're told to behold the deluded emptiness of those who worship idols. And then in response here, we're told to behold the servant of the one true God. So that's an important contrast that we want to keep in mind, and and we'll come back to that at the end of our study. Right out of the gates, we, we get the sense that we are beholding someone quite wonderful, he is upheld by God himself. He, how, how is he supported by God? We're told that God has put his spirit on this servant. Now that in itself isn't so unusual. In Numbers 11, um, the spirit of God was poured out on all the elders of Israel. And then in 1 Samuel, we see that the spirit rushes upon the, the newly anointed King David. So the spirit has often accompanied God's anointed leaders, but there is something unique here because we're told that God's soul delights in this servant. That is very strong language. Uh, And it's warranted. Verse one points us to the baptism and the transfiguration of Jesus where, where God the Father says, you know, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased Indeed, there are many servants of God, but this servant is the one beloved son. He is unique in God's sight. Not only is he uniquely delighted in, but he also has been given a mission that far exceeds anything Moses or David were called to. He will bring forth justice to the nations. To the nations. Now, the concept of justice here, it's not just sort of uh, um, addressing uh, wrongs that have happened retroactively. It's not just kind of correcting what's been done wrong. The Hebrew word encompasses more than we would normally think of for justice. It has to do with restoring the order of God to, that he intended for all of creation. So it's not just fighting crimes, but it's addressing the root cause of injustice. He doesn't just beef up the police budget or appoint better judges, or educate kids from a young age about how we have equal value and need to work together in civil society. As noble as those efforts may be, those are only going to see a small proportion of effectiveness. We've been doing that for centuries, millennia, in different ways. Those efforts aim for justice. They try for justice. But they don't bring forth justice in an effectual way. This servant will bring forth justice. And as mentioned, this servant comes bringing forth justice strangely with this sense of gentle control. Gentle meaning power under control, right? If you're not powerful, then you can't really be gentle. You're just weak. But if you have power and uh, you're wise about how you use your power, and you never abuse it, then we can call you gentle. So verse 2 says, He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. So when a new leader arrives on the scene where there hasn't been justice, and he's going to bring justice, how do you expect him to act? probably outraged or fierce or demanding respect and cooperation. 
Well, not this servant. He won't cry aloud. It means he's not going to shriek and startle everyone. He's not lifting his voice. That means he's not raising his voice in an, in an attempt to shout others down or intimidate. He's not, um, he's not dominating with his demeanor. And not making it known on the street, that means he's not going to run an image-oriented campaign. He's not going to pander for publicity. He won't need to. He's so sure of himself and of the coming victory of his cause that his message carries itself and transforms people on its own. And we see this in the ministry of Jesus, don't we? That he didn't need to dispute. He purposefully and he calmly acts against the unjust burdens of the self-righteous religious leaders, but they are the ones who are left raging and clamoring to be heard. He's not afraid to engage them, but he doesn't need to shout them down and be heard. He just acts with integrity and decisiveness, and then they're the ones left outraged. As a modern example, just so we can kind of get our minds around what would this demeanor look like. I'm so thankful for the work and example of Martin Luther King Jr. Because when those who were in power wanted to just sweep grave injustice under the rug, he spoke truth and he organized people to make the injustice visible until society could no longer ignore it. He, like imperfectly like all of us, but he was a, he was a man who embodied so much of what Jesus, what this passage is saying about Jesus' demeanor because he was collected, he was rational, he spoke with precision. He didn't create injustice in other areas just to bring about justice in the area he was concerned about. He wasn't raging. He wasn't a bully in order to seek justice. You know, it's kind of become a, a popular notion in the last decade or so that the cause of ending injustice justifies all sorts of hateful rhetoric and destructive actions. But Jesus didn't need to stoop to that level. He came with gentleness and meekness, power under control. Now, one chapter earlier, Isaiah prophesied about Cyrus the Great, the Persian leader who had come from the northeast, trampling kings underfoot and ending the Babylonian oppression. And he was a servant of justice in many ways, but what happens when a powerful emperor comes to establish justice? It's not always in the most careful way, right? It can't be. If you need to take over a city, whoever's on the other side of that wall, like, they're gonna die, right? Whether they're the oppressors or the victims, with con when a conqueror comes rolling through, he's just gonna level what was there previously, even if there needs to be some collateral damage during the reset. But that's not the way that this servant of justice is. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. So the imagery is that those who feel broken won't be just plowed over as justice is established. And those who are losing faith and hope, Jesus doesn't just skip over them in order to focus on the strong ones. No, Jesus takes that flickering flame in his hands. He cups it and, and he sees it through to full gleam again. You know, verses 1 through 4 are actually quoted in Matthew 12. And the, the context there is that Jesus pulls away from the Pharisees. He pulls away from that conflict. And, but many people follow him, and they are healed by him. So he's not interested in that high-profile conflict with the unjust leaders. He pulls away from them. He's content just to, to thwart them in a different way by giving compassionate, individual attention to victims of Satan's injustice. And why were these people following him? Because they recognized God's spirit in him, so they would follow him anywhere. And this has big implications for you and me today. First, you can come to Jesus for refuge. You can trust him. He has individual compassion for you. Now, it's true that you're a sinner, right? It's true that you are part of the problem. And so because of your sin, you actually should be broken. You should be a snuffed out candle. I don't want to minimize that, okay? I remember in, um, in 2003, I was with a group that was trying to share the gospel at Moscow State University. And we were looking for a place on the campus to have a group meeting, um, not with very much success. 
because we were foreigners speaking in a second language. Um, but we met this wealthy student, uh, totally not a Christian. He befriended us because he thought Americans were cool. And he, he um, you know, we're getting to know this guy. I think his name was Basil. And um, he's telling us all about Russia's problems, about the corruption. We just can't seem to turn the page because there's so much corruption. There's so much bribery. just plagues society. And we're like, you know, really sympathetic. Like, I feel you, man. Yeah. Um, well, the next day, he comes and he's, he kind of like smugly tells us that he had secured a classroom for us to use. And we were like, how in the world did you pull that off? And he admitted that he had pulled the department chair aside and given him an expensive gift. <laughs> and you know, I think it's a little bit like that for all of us, that we bemoan the corruption and the injustice that plagues our world, but then to get ahead in this world, we use exactly the same practices. So the fact of the matter is that we don't deserve justice. We have all helped to perpetuate injustice. And that may sound extreme, but the more you think on it, the more you'll realize it's true. In different ways, right? We haven't, we haven't all perpetuated all types of injustice, but we have all perpetuated injustice. And I think we would shudder and we would weep if we could truly see all the ways that our actions have affected others. We've all helped to perpetuate injustice, even if just through our selfishness or our silence. But the good news of Jesus Christ is that redemption has come to us through the judgment of Jesus in our place. And this exchange reveals God both as just in how he deals with evil and also just in accepting the one who has faith in Jesus. It, it shouldn't, you'd feel like it shouldn't fit together, but it does, and that's the miracle of the gospel. So if you trust this morning that Jesus absorbed the penalty for your injustice, then he stands ready, willing, and able to help you, to heal you of all of the injustices which you've, from which you've been victimized. You can go to him for healing, and this world is a very, very broken place. So when I think about even just the people in this room, I would imagine that there are some in this room who have endured economic injustice, racial injustice, injustice in relationships, maybe even sexual exploitation or violent abuse. There are people who've been unjustly denied things that they had earned or they've been overlooked or compromised because of the evil intentions of others. And for all these injuries that we carry around with us, Jesus is tender and he's attentive. He's our healer and defender. So if you haven't actively brought those things to him, you need to. Even if it feels like you're reopening old wounds, you need to do that. He doesn't want you to walk around scarred and jaded. He wants you to be free. But even beyond all of these injustices, at the hands of other people, we are also all victims of Satan's injustice. You know, he has told us lies, just like he told Eve. He's abused his power to gain mastery over us, deceiving us and trapping us inside of his house of slavery. And so, as we come to Jesus, Jesus says, no more. He stares down the oppressor, and he says, this one is mine. This broken reed will not break. This smoldering wick will never go out. It will faithfully bring forth justice. And verse 3 continues that he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. And here we need to note something interesting about the Hebrew and and that's that the, the forms of the same verbs are being used in verses 2 and 3. Now, most versions like ours here have the words um, faint and, um, sorry. Um, I'm sorry, not 2 and 3. I, me I mean 3 and 4. So the, uh, the same verbs, a play on the same verbs in verses 3 and 4. Um, in verse 4, we, we read, he will not grow faint or be discouraged. Well, there's actually a play on words there, even though it's hard to see in the English. So the parallel would be something like this. A crushed reed he will not break. 
a dim wick he will not extinguish, and then he himself will not grow dim or be crushed. So the very same conditions endured by the victims of injustice, the servant himself will also experience. But he will not be overcome by this suffering. He will persevere until he has established justice in the earth. So this is a strong hint about the temptation and the persecution and the betrayal and the murder of Jesus, that he would face eyes wide open, faithfully walking on that road marked out for him until the victory was won. And that has big implications for us too because we walk as followers on that path of the suffering servant. Now only he atoned for sin, only he bound the oppressor of our souls, but in Jesus' footsteps, we seek to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God and the world is going to punish us for that. If they've done this to the master and the teacher, how much more will they malign those of his household? But thankfully, the same spirit who anointed Jesus' ministry lives in us. And that means that we can have the same demeanor as the servant of justice. We don't need to be arrogant or outraged when we face injustice. We don't have to demand to be heard or we don't have to steamroll those who would speak against us. We can quietly get to work fixing the problem, showing individual compassionate attention to those who are in need and taking hard moral stands, fully understanding the probable cost to ourselves. As we seek to honor Christ, not only in what we do, but in how we do it. As we trust him for the final vindication, the final establishment of justice, then we will not grow dim or be crushed, but rather we'll be renewed day by day by God who upholds us just as he upheld Jesus during his earthly ministry. So life in the service of the servant of justice, that gives us as Christians the staying power, the long-term effectiveness in seeking justice, in seeking to remedy racism, domestic abuse, abortion, unjust poverty, the tyranny of any kind of sin. But to the world, it looks just the opposite. Often it looks like Christians aren't pursuing justice. Uh, now, there are a number of reasons for that. One, they might have a very different definition of justice. Two, they might be looking at the poor examples of people who claim the name of Christ but actually aren't Christians. Or three, they may not see the subtle and gentle ways in which we do go about pursuing justice because what they want us to adopt is the joyless and the hopeless mercenary methods for change just like they wanted Jesus to throw off the Roman oppression in their timing and in their way. Now, admittedly, the way of justice, that this, this way of Jesus that doesn't shriek or dominate others, the way that takes care not to snuff out the candle, um, this kind of justice will also seem strange to the world because so much of its work is hidden. It takes this, the role of prayer seriously, Right? We're crying out to the God of justice. We know that he hears our cries. And the world has no use for prayer as, as work against injustice. Also, the work of a Christian against injustice, while definitely getting our hands dirty, it will also spend much effort encouraging others to know the suffering servant for themselves. And the world definitely has no appreciation for evangelism as a means to fighting injustice. But he, Jesus, is, the, is ultimately the one who's going to establish justice on the earth. And we read that the coastlands wait for his law. Coastlands here implies the farthest reaches of the earth where he's not yet known. They don't know quite what they're looking for. We get the sense that they long for the order and the peace that only the law of Christ can bring them. And for me, that's really encouraging to read. Like, do we have this sort of confidence in our outreach that not everyone is going to be opposed? There are people even now, whether near or far, there are hearts that are being prepared. They want to receive him, but they don't know him. They haven't heard of him. So let's go and find them. Now, this gentle control, 
that the servant with which the servant brings about justice, it's not just for us to experience. It's for the whole world. And so then in verse 5, it's fitting that this kind of zooms out to consider the entire creation. The text also shifts from talking, it was talking to us about the servant. Now in verse 5, it's going to shift and it's talking, it's God speaking directly to the servant. So it's God the Father addressing God the Son to promise his support throughout this mission of establishing justice. We read, Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spreads out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. One thing that we learn clearly about the servant from these verses is that he has the closest of relationships with the very creator of space and time, and that means, since he enjoys the creator's confidence, he, know, he knows like his work really has no chance of failing because the one who designed everything has guaranteed that these things are going to happen. And that means that we, as Jesus' people, we have every reason to hope in the midst of injustice. It means that the promise of the Father to the Son serves as a promise to us also that this world is not a closed system where the only moving part is humanity. No, divine plans are afoot here. And that means that we can endure, even if the space in which we live looks hopelessly corrupted, even if the time, the generation in which we live seems hopelessly corrupted. We believe the promise of verse 6. We live by trusting the maker of all, that there is a righteous realm where the, the, the people will share in life as he intended it for them. So you have to cling to that promise. Do you believe it in whatever you're going through, whatever injustice you face in your life? Know that true justice has been enacted and it transcends your limited experience. Um, Martin Luther King Jr., he, uh, this is a great quote. He says, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And in fact, it doesn't just bend toward justice, it, it fully reaches justice, even though we can't, see that given our tunnel vision justice has been accomplished in jesus and is sovereignly playing out before our eyes the creator has ordained it to be so so this gave the apostle paul great confidence uh, the apostle paul was riffing on these very verses when he preached in athens in acts chapter 17 here are the similarities in, in Acts 17 he says the god who made the world and everything in it gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So the Apostle Paul looked at our passage here and he saw this description of the servant, Jesus, the one who would bring justice in a final way. And then he saw the historical reality of the resurrection. And he says... God did it. There's, there's no uncertainty whatsoever. This is the reality. We know Jesus will come to judge because of the resurrection. On this side of the resurrection, we see clearly that the Father did keep Jesus. He did give him as a promise of deliverance for the people. And so whether we live in times of ease and freedom or whether we live under a lot of hardship and oppression like the Israelites during 400 years of slavery in Egypt. Whatever God appoints, this shows his trustworthiness as a guarantor of, of justice. We can live as liberated and healed people even within the walls of whatever hell on earth we might have to face. And we trust him in part because we have had foretastes of how he is renewing all of creation. So this passage speaks of the servant opening eyes and bringing out prisoners from the dungeon. We see in the New Testament, um, Jesus, his apostles, you know, th this actually happened. Healing the blind, deaf, lame, mute, deformed, diseased. And for prisons, we see in the ministry of Jesus, people freed from demonic oppression, 
We see in Acts, Peter miraculously rescued from jail by an angel. We see Paul and Silas set free from prison in Philippi. So Jesus does open the eyes of the blind. He does bring prisoners out from the dungeon. I mean, he claimed this identity of the servant, of Isaiah's servant. In Luke 4, Jesus told the people in his hometown, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, you might think, and some people do, that this is simply why Jesus came, to give healing and freedom. Now, period. And certainly we believe that he still answers prayers. He still can and does relieve suffering and provide escape from oppressive circumstances when people come to him today. He mercifully gives us foretastes of life in his realm, his kingdom of wholeness. But what about when he doesn't? What about when Christians fervently pray and then they still have disabilities or they die of cancer? What about during his own ministry when Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, wasn't brought out of Herod's dungeon, but instead was beheaded? Or not too long after Jesus' ascension, one of his closest disciples, James, the son of Zebedee, was not released. He was executed. Or think about today. In so many places, Christians are imprisoned by evil regimes, and sometimes they're miraculously released. And even their jailers become Christians. And sometimes, even when there's just this fervent prayer going on, those same imprisoned ones are tortured and murdered. You're not going to be able to make sense of these apparent inconsistencies unless you realize that the blindness and the imprisonment that he's most concerned with are not physical and temporal but they're at the very center of who we are as sinful humanity. So the gospel writers portray Jesus' healing ministry as, yes, it's, it's his sincere care for those who are coming to him in need, but also these miracles were signs pointing us to his deeper ministry of healing and liberation, pointing us to the cross and the resurrection. And one point where that's super clear is in John chapter 9, where Jesus heals the blind man twice. He heals him once from his physical blindness and then he heals him from his spiritual blindness. And the chapter ends with Jesus' words of summary. He says, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. So there's a deeper sense of seeing that that we, we all need to come to him to receive a spiritual sight. And Uh, Similarly, about liberation. Isaiah had prophesied about King Cyrus liberating the, the Israelites from Babylon, and that happened in 538 BC. But then Jesus, centuries later, quotes from Isaiah 61 to say that he was proclaiming liberty to the captives and setting at liberty those who are oppressed. So, why? If if it had already happened in 538, because The Babylonian captivity was an image of humanity's captivity in sin, and Jesus came to liberate us from our underlying oppression. So have you experienced the spiritual freedom that he won for his people? Have you been healed from that corruption of futile living? Have you been freed from the power and the penalty of evil? Because once you've had that experience as God's gift received through faith, then the whole of the Christian life becomes one that's oriented against injustice and that partners with our servant Savior in ushering in his righteous realm. So the servant will act with gentle control. He will restore creation. And lastly, the core of the servant's mission. He will sever the very root of injustice. Verse 9 turns to, again, address everyone, and it's emphasizing the lasting impact of the servant's work. He concludes, I am the Lord, Yahweh, is a Hebrew. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, the new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So remember how we trace that path from idolatry to injustice. Well, now we see that being reversed. And in the servant's work, 
in establishing justice, he's going to, it's, it's all going to end with the exaltation of God, the true God reclaiming the glory that we would be tempted to give to other objects of worship. So the servant who, who brings justice, he will address the oppression being experienced, but his justice doesn't just stop there. It continues to make sure that the truth is clearly known, that personal corruption is undone, that idolatry ceases forever. Now that, that focus on idolatry, it might sound irrelevant to us. Like after all, we don't bow down to carved idols, right? I hope not. Um, I mean, I shouldn't take that for granted because if you come from, from um, maybe Eastern religions or animistic traditions, you might. Um, but, you know, secular Westerners generally don't. And so is scripture wrong about what causes injustice? Not at all. Not at all, because whenever we deny the role of God as architect and king, then we're putting ourselves or something else in that place. And so our idolatry just makes gods out of natural things, like maybe it's people whose favor we really crave, or maybe it's pleasures that we feel we have to experience, or maybe we're exalting some part of our identity and making it the ultimate, like, um, like our intellect or workmanship or wealth or national pride. And those become our functional gods. Well, verse 9, uh, it's, it's actually a direct reference back to forty-one, chapter 41. And um, there's, a, there's a part there where actually God is mocking idols. I love this sarcasm in, that you find in the, in the prophets um, sometimes. Um, but this is starting in verse 21. God says, set forth your case says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. And then he goes on to declare what he, he means by the former things. He means the one from the north and the east, Cyrus, is going to conquer Israel's oppressor, Babylon. And that would come to pass less than 100 years later. But here in chapter 42, verse 9, it's a look even to the future from that future. So it says, yeah, the physical liberation from Cyrus, that's that's so certain we'll consider that as good as done. But now with this servant song, he's announcing an even more profound thing that the fake gods could never anticipate or communicate. These new things are the work of the servant that's going to happen over 600 years in the future from Isaiah's time. So now, today, us looking back at the book of Isaiah, we see that both the former things and the new things have come to pass so my big question for you is, what are you going to do with what this passage says? Will you behold the servant? Will you behold him in faith? Will you see how Jesus is God's unique provision to establish final justice in the world? Will you see the Father's delight in him? Will you see his unique qualification of being cloaked in the Spirit? Will you note the work to which he's been appointed and pay attention to how that happened in the account of Scripture? Pay attention to the endless testimonies from men and women throughout the last 2,000 years in all contexts, all cultures, whose eyes were opened and they were joyously set free in a transformative way by their encounter with Jesus. Note that the, the care that the shepherd exercises toward victims of sin's tyranny, he doesn't snuff out dim wicks, he doesn't break the bruised reeds, and as our leader, he himself didn't grow dim, he wasn't crushed by evil, all the way to the cross and back again. The scope of his finished work of redemption reaches to the farthest coastlands. Will you let this servant of the Lord, Jesus, the just, will you let him sever the root of injustice in your own life? Will you let him gently but boldly, as a master surgeon, cut destructive objects of devotion and, and self-worship out of your life so that you'll stop acting unjustly toward others, so that you'll stop being victimized yourself by sin's tyranny, 
And will you trust this servant with all of the injustice that you've experienced in your past, looking to him alone as your protector and liberator and healer? Because if you do that, then your eyes will truly be open to wonders. And the Lord, Yahweh, that is his name, his proper glory will not be given to another. Don't you want that for your life? May it be so for each of us, beholding this servant. In his name, we can serve the oppressed and exploited ones. We can work for the same mercy that he shows. And in doing that, in trusting him, we will be kept for that day when all injustice will finally be swept away. So our great God, we thank you for this glorious picture of who Jesus is, of how you sent him to establish justice in the world. We long to be part of that work. And we know in order for that to happen, there are ways in which we need the injustice in our own lives more fully dealt with. We know and we invite you to address the areas in our life where we are acting unjustly toward others, even in small ways, in selfish ways. You pinpoint that, Holy Spirit. Will you free us more fully from sin's tyranny? Lord, as we are in Christ, we know that the devil has no authority in our lives. We ask, God, that you would undo his schemes to bind us and imprison us in patterns of sin. Bring about that work more fully in our lives. And Lord, a lot of us just have baggage. We've been hurt deeply and unjustly. So Lord, we pray for deeper healing. And we pray for transparency, that we would bring those things to you, that we would bring those things to your people. And we would, we would look at the gospel together. We would behold this servant who is more than capable to deal with anything we've been dealt as he went all the way to the cross he experienced the greatest injustice upon himself and then he came back again so we celebrate his victory and ask for a greater share of it a full experience of it through your holy spirit today it's in christ's name we pray amen